Not Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And I'm Kimber Donovan. And this week we are tackling another Miss Marple short story. It is called The Bloodstained Pavement. It was first published in the Row Magazine in March 1928. And in the U.S., in Detective Story, in June of the same year. Although, the most interesting thing about that is that it had another title. You know, we've talked in the past about how the U.S. titles were both spoilery and had a Scooby-Doo quality. Mm-hmm. But this one is actually kind of remarkable, not because it has a Scooby-Doo quality, but because it's called a Drip Drip. That is pretty amazing that this story was called Drip Drip with exclamation points after the drips. Yeah. I'm I'm very surprised by that. Oh, (laughs) I mean, it's like really grotesque in some way. It's like H.P. Lovecraft or something. Yeah, just have a Chitulu in there and like (laughs) we'd be all set. It's like some Tales from the Crypt action there. Yeah. There's something uh, particularly macabre about it. Yeah, yes, it's macabre. So this is a kind of a first, but we can't really say the name of the victim because that actually spoils this story. So let us just say that the victim is a lady who was found deceased on the Cornish coast. Again, we are in Cornwall here. Think Poldark, think Du Maurier. You know, we really get a sense of the windswept cliffside here and how. We also got the sense, which actually really does go into that kind of Du Maurier vibe, that maybe we're talking about a ghost story. Absolutely. So to be clear, the narrator of this is, Joyce Lempriere. Right. So we're, you know, again, we're at our Tuesday night club and the new narrator is Raymond West's girlfriend. Well, his lady friend. I don't want to spoil anything, but by the end of these stories, they may be something more. Well, right now, she is simply an artiste who happens to be friends with Raven West. Mm, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing. I want to give her the back of the doubt, but it really, really casts her in a poor light if she is involved with Raymond West. So You just want to pretend for as long as possible that Raymond West is alone and just utterly bereft of all human contact and comfort, don't you? Oh, he's like the worst person you've ever met on Tinder. Didn't we already have the worst person you... Oh, that was... When we were actually also we were, Raymond West, probably no, we were and we we mentioned this in our last episode too, the Sidiford mystery. When we were talking about, remember the colonel, the one who had oh the journalist, yeah, the Indian servant that hung out outside of his house. Oh, oh him. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, he was a creepy serial. Yeah, killer. he was pretty creepy. Speaking of creepy serial killers, <laughs> speaking of creepy serial, let's killers. just get back into this. So, victim is a woman who's found <laughs> drowned uh, off the Cornish coast. That is all that we're going to say for now. Let's talk about the suspects. So we have a man. He doesn't really have a name. We get to know him as Dennis, right? We do. His name is Dennis. He stops at an inn in the town of... What's the name of that town, Catherine? (laughs) Yeah, so the town is called Rathole, which I also found really (laughs) curious. 
Is Christy, like, trolling us? It's mentioned repeatedly, too. I know. I actually had the thought that I'm gonna. I'm very proud of myself here for making a very British reference, but there's this great sitcom that I would watch on BBC in the middle of the night called Keeping Up Appearances. Yeah, of course. And the protagonist, if you will, is named... My name is Bouquet. B-U-C-K-E-T. <laughs> no, it's not Bucket, it's Bouquet. I was imagining that if you're from Rat Hole, you spend all of your days telling outsiders, it's pronounced Rathole. <laughs> Just not Rat Hole, but it's got to be Rat Hole, right? Listen, I did Google this so that I was not going to offend anyone. Mm-hmm. And I do not see this on a map. Shocking. I mean, I suppose it could be, like, Rathole. It's Rathole. It's Rathole. <laughs> it's a Cornish vacation destination, apparently, Rathole. Everyone wants to go to the Poller with Arms Inn and Rathole. Again, again, this might actually be, like, a question for people who are from Cornwall, but putting Paul in front of stuff, is that, like, a... Yeah, what does Paul maybe? mean? Maybe Paul means something in Cornish. Now I really do it want might. to know. I mean, that's like a really legitimate So it's like question. something dark, you know? It's like it's like Dark Man or whatever. Pull Dark and then Polar With and Pulperin, right? From our, from last week. And yeah. From our last pull episode. Pull In. Pull House. Yeah. Weird. Please, yeah. listeners, enlighten us. So anyway, we haven't even gotten suspects yet. All right. So a man named Dennis who stops at the inn with his frumpy wife, Marjorie, the in, in Rat Marjorie wears a lot of mauve. They both pass by Joyce Lampriere, the artist who has also decided to vacation in Rat Hole, and paint from the porch of the Pollard with Arms Inn. So this is why she's observing all of these people come and going in front of her. Next, we have Marjorie, said Frumpster, in mauve. She's married to Dennis. She's a wife. I have nothing else to say about her. She's not really described. Yeah. She's frumpy and she wears a lot of mauve and the colors are important so we are not mentioning the word mauve repeatedly for no reason yep there's a third suspect carol who is another lady and she dresses all in flaming scarlet and not mauve and she's also very made up right she's got a white face she is and she wears flaming scarlet lipstick as well and Carol seems to be a friend of Dennis and Marjorie's, who they act, they just happen to run into, right, at... Coincidentally in Rat Hole. Because everyone's going to Rat Hole. One of the compelling things about Rat Hole is, um, as we discussed in Ingots of Gold, the last episode, is that the Spanish Armada attacked the Cornwall coast. And so Rat Hole was a town that, as Joyce describes it in the Tuesday night club meeting, it was shelled. And Raymond West gives her, like, a really bad look and is basically like, that is not what happened. And she's like, okay, well, fine. They took artillery to it. Which is so perfect, by the way, because I'm just going to stereotype here a little bit, and I hope this doesn't offend anyone. But there is such a type of man who reads military history. Mansplains? Well, mansplains, sure, but who reads military history and is really up on the specifics and the ins and outs of wars and how they were fought and waged and the technical aspects Whoa. of bullets. And it just, it so doesn't surprise me that Raymond West is, is, is that no, kind of a guy. I mean, in 
fairness to Raymond West, I will say that if we're still in 1928, we're still pretty close to the Great War. And the shelling would be a very different thing. Sure. It's, it's a pretty obvious mistake that she makes when she says that they were shelled, but... He never misses an opportunity well, to... Well, she, she, use she uses it twice. It's a short story, and she says it twice. I know. Well, he never misses an opportunity to correct anyone. It's not a surprising moment in the career of Raymond West. Garbage person, Raymond West. Yeah. Anyway. So they're all there. It's kind of a tourist attraction, and guess because the town survived? Mm-hmm. And I guess the streets ran red with blood? Right, because they were so overwhelmed by the Spanish by the Armada. Spanish. Yep. But they survived. They did. So Joyce is down there being very painterly. Mm-hmm. She has a really good scenic view, both at the front of the inn and, I guess, of the coast. But I think the coast is, like, in the, in the distance, mm-hmm. and she's got, like, the street going down, right, toward the yeah. cliffs. It's so part and, of the reason why she yeah. wants to talk about the world as it appears to be, and she wants to tell the story to the Tuesday Night Club, is that this painting has haunted her. Right. She has it facing against a wall in the back of her studio, and she never looks at it. A little bit of a picture of Dorian Gray kind of a vibe. Yeah. If only the picture could change. And I could be always what I am now. For that, I would give everything. There's nothing in the whole world I would not give. I would give my soul for that. There's a really, really good Stephen and King short story. And it's a later day one. Mm -hmm. It's called The Road Virus Heads North. It is terrifying. And it is about a man who decides on his drive home to Maine. He stops at a rummage sale, and he buys a painting of, like, a very sinister car. Essentially, the painting keeps changing so that the view in the painting is his view out the rear window. And so the monster in the painting is essentially following him. It is a terrifying story. I do highly recommend it. Possessed paintings can be very creepy. Unfortunately, we don't have enough of that in this story. (laughs) No, we don't, because all we got is that Joyce painted this, and then she put it facing a wall. I guess she didn't want to sell it, but she doesn't want to throw it away. And the reason why is, dun-dun-dun, the blood-stained pavement. Right. So this is our only clue in the story. What the deal is is that after watching all of this happening with Dennis and Marjorie and then running into Carol and the comings and goings, she hears that they all agree to go to the beach, and they do, presumably, and then she only sees Dennis and Marjorie come back. They strip off their swimsuits to dry. Their room is a floor up, and they hang their swimsuits over the edge of the balcony on the railing. While all this is happening and Joyce is painting the scene in front of her, she's also speaking with a local fisherman who's talking about all of the history of the town and streets running with blood when they were being besieged by the Spanish Armada, et cetera, et cetera. And she suddenly looks at her painting and she realizes that she has painted bloodstains on the pavement in front of the parlor with arms. Right. And she thinks that this must have just been due to the influence of her conversation with the fishermen and talking about the the town's history and whatnot. So she's just sort of projecting. And she asks him to check, is there blood on the pavement? She asks the fisherman, right, who she's she's chatting with. 
And he goes and looks and he says no. And she kind of thinks she's going crazy because even though she says, I guess, I guess it's something I projected, she also does have a feeling that no, she was drawing from life. She, she right. there, there must have actually been blood on the pavement. This couldn't have been supernatural. And in a Christie story, usually, yes, that is a fair... <laughs> Unless we're in the south of France and there is a lady ghost trying to warn you. <laughs> all right, all right. We've referenced the mystery of the blue train's lady ghost, what lies beneath moment. I feel bad. We've ribbed poor Dame Agatha enough for that one. Well, so there is something, there is something going on. Yes, yeah, so there must be something going on. It's probably not supernatural, so... The deduction would be there was indeed blood on the pavement. So where did it come from? Hmm. Drip. Drip. As anybody who has wrung something out. <laughs> yep. Drip, drip, as the American title went. Um, anybody who has wrung out clothing that had dye or a stain of some kind in it. Yep. And it was not rinsed out thoroughly enough. When you get water dripping out of it, you're also going to get whatever you did not rinse out well enough. Right. So we mentioned that those bathing suits had been put out on the railing above, and there must have been blood dripping from those bathing suits. And so one was dark blue. That was Dennis's, right? Uh, weren't they both lady bathing suits? No, one of them had to have been his, right? Because the other lady's yeah. wearing her bathing suit. I guess. It's the 20s. He's wearing like a full-on bathing costume. One is dark blue, and mm-hmm. one is scarlet colored. And that should actually be a giveaway. Right, because who was wearing all scarlet? Not Dennis's wife, Marjorie, who was the frumpy one in mauve, but Carol. She was dressed all in scarlet, so one could assume, perhaps, that a scarlet bathing suit is more likely to be hers than Marjorie. So it's already very curious, what are Dennis and Carol's bathing suits doing together in what should be Dennis and Marjorie's room, but also why is there blood dripping? And also the thing about blood is that you would not be able to see it on dark blue and you would not be able to see it on scarlet. And it's especially the scarlet, though, that you wouldn't be able to see it on, right? Because scarlet is blood-colored. You know what? It's especially the dark blue. I mean, I guess it is, but I think in the in the story, though, isn't it that we're supposed to think that it's on the scarlet bathing suit, aren't Marple we? Marple thinks it's a scarlet. Miss Marple thinks it's on the scarlet, which would make sense. So that is our one clue. The resolution is that dear husband Dennis is, he's a murderer here. He's a, and then he's a, Well, he's a serial killer. We find out ultimately he's a serial killer, but in this case, what he did is that the meeting with Carol was, of course, not in any way coincidental. He did marry Marple. Marjorie. Marjorie believed that she was Dennis's wife, but Dennis is, in fact, with Carol. I have no idea if they're, you know, legally married. But it's implied they're married. Yeah, but I mean, it doesn't matter. They're they're a Bonnie and Clyde. No, it doesn't. She's she's an accomplice. Yeah. And so what he's doing is he's getting really frumpy women mm-hmm. to marry him. Yep. He's taking them to fancy seaside holidays. Yep. Then Carol is showing up. They're going to the beach. Being like, and oh, then hey, and Carol- oh, my God. Let's go, let's go swim. Fun. Yay. Yeah, and then he and Carol are killing the women. Yep. And they're making sure that the beach that they pick, this is the worst thing about it to me. They pick the beach that they're going to kill the women on based on Currents. the flow pattern. Yeah, because they want the body to drift enough. Yeah. So that the body is not going to be found until days later and it end in a different place. The reason why Carol dresses only in Scarlet is because that is going to be noticed by everybody. 
Right. And then she dresses up as Frumpy Wife. And they leave together. Oh, so correct. it seems like they leave. seems like Dennis and Marjorie have left Apollo with arms perfectly alive and safe. And then because the current is strong, the body's not going to be found for days. So so that's long enough for the timing to match up that no one is going to think it was Marjorie because everyone saw Marjorie leave and they're going to believe that it was Carol, the one who was so noticeable and wearing the scarlet. Well, they're not even going to believe that it was Carol, right? Because they've seen Carol too. She's showing up as every person. So the body is just like a rando. Right. The brilliance of the scheme is that because it was a random meetup that Carol is this friend that they didn't mean to spend time with, but they just said, oh, hey, yeah, let's spend an afternoon swimming. The couple can leave and never have anything to do with Carol again, and no one's going to be suspicious about that. And then Carol, quote unquote, doesn't show up again, but she was alone. So no one's really keeping tabs on her. Right. So, oh, it's you, know. A, you know, it's a great scheme if you are a horrifying serial killer. By the end of the story, we know that Dennis has done it to at least two people. Well, the ridiculous thing, though, is that, and I find this a coincidence that strains credulity a bit for me, we're to believe that Joyce Lamprier went to another inn in another vacation spot (laughs) and ran into Dennis and Carol again. Maybe Joyce is Carol. Maybe Joyce is Carol. That would... (laughs) You know what? Yeah. If this were like the 90s <laughs> horror movie version of the Tuesday Night Club Murders, the the final reveal, she'd like rip off her mask and she'd be like, and it was me. And she'd have a knife and she'd stab them all to death. Except for Miss Marple, who would defend herself with her knitting needles and somehow stab Joyce in the eye just in the right way and save the day from a cowering Raymond West who was clutching at his aunt's ankles like the useless fool I mean, you have painted a very different picture of Miss Marple <laughs> short story. <laughs> so, um, we can... But you see where I'm coming from, right? I do. We're to believe, though, that she did run into this same we murderous serial killing couple We are to believe that she's again. actually not a serial killer helper. Herself, yeah. We are meant to believe that. Whether or not you do believe that is up to you. That is up to you, dear listener. <laughs> we're not supposed to believe that, and we're supposed to believe that she, in fact, ran to Scotland Yard... After she ran into this couple again, and she immediately reported to Scotland Yard, and then Scotland Yard apparently told her, oh, yeah, we were kind of totally on that. They totally seemed like serial killers. So, I mean, Yeah, so they were already being tracked. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, training credulity might be an issue in this one. Yeah, but Sir Henry Clithering, once again, very conveniently is able to confirm Miss Marple, though, is the only one that realizes with not just the bathing suit thing, though, but there's another reason. Because the bathing suit clue is, a, let's be honest, it's a little tangential here to what they're doing. I mean, that explains why there's blood in Joyce's painting. But Miss Marple uses her intuition about how humanity is just awful. Well, because she says that a woman, because it's about insurance. Money. Right, it's about insurance. Right? I mean, Dennis, he took out these massive life insurance policies on these frumpy women that he married and then collected on them. So also, by the way, not too smart of a... That's not all that devious of a plot. I'm not surprised that Scotland Yard was on to him after two or three times of that happening. No, I mean, I think I think after the second time, the insurance company is probably going to be a little suspicious. Ted Bundy did not take out, like, insurance policies on ladies asking for automotive help. Wow, wow, Catherine. Okay. 
Um, and in that, and in that dark vein, I know before before we get to Miss Marple's analogy from Life in Saint Mary Mead, I just which like is to, horrifying. I just horrifying. want to point that. I would just like to point out that most of the time when Miss Marple is talking about her real life analogies with Saint Mary Mead, I think the first time we get it is in the murder at the vicarage. She's talking about these pickled shrimps that went missing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's these delightful little small town mishaps and things that happen. And it, they're not always delightful. I mean, she's, she's constantly referencing the fact that people are just as awful in a small town like St. Mary Mead as they are in a metropolis like London. I, I get that. But this, I certainly don't remember from oh, the first time I read well, the story. This threw me for a loop. Ew, Catherine, please ew. tell our listeners what the analogy is that Miss Marple uses here. So Raymond, garbage person extraordinaire says aunt jane said raymond looking at her curiously how do you do it you've lived such a peaceful life and yet nothing seems to surprise you i always find one thing very like another in this world said miss marple there was mrs green you know she buried five children and every one of them insured well naturally one began to get suspicious she shook her head There's a great deal of wickedness in village life. I hope you dear young people will never realize how very wicked the world is. What? Wow. Yeah, so Miss Marple knew a woman who murdered her five Five children. Five of her children. Yeah. Can you even take out insurance on your own children, by the way? That just doesn't even seem like something that's possible. But that's beside the point. Whoa. It's done as an aside in like the last few sentences of this short story. I know. I find this entire story incredibly dark. And it's so casual. There's ca- that's beating the, a- That's why. I feel like I'm constantly talking about all these classic Christie moments when there's the Christie misdirect with clues and whatnot. And those are all well and good. But there's a very particular kind of casual darkness and cynicism to Christy in some of these stories where you're just kind of la 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 plodding along and then all of a sudden it's like she drops this bomb of people just doing something awful or just being absolutely horrific. Well, this entire story for the most part, Joyce gets made fun of because it seems like it's a crappy ghost story. Right. Right? It seems like it's a low low grade ghost story, absolutely. And then it turns out not only is it not a low-grade ghost story, it is, in fact, a story about a serial killer. And on top of that, Miss Marple throws in the fact that this woman in St. Mary Mead murdered five of her children for the insurance money. Yep. All matter of fact. Yeah, in, like, in a few pages. It's ruthless, this ruthlessness that Christy has. I love it. It scratches a certain itch. That ruthlessness. I know that sounds horrible, but it just does with Christy, and I think that's part of her appeal. Well, perhaps you are a Dennis in this scenario. Perhaps. It's kind of like the philosophy of, I can't believe I'm I'm going to bring this up, but I remember reading a long article about the incidence of violent crime in Japan is remarkably low. And it is such a also remarkable contrast with the violence of pornography there. Very violent. Very violent. I feel like you're really putting your toe into some dangerous waters here, but go on. I absolutely am, but you can you can make the argument either way. You can say that violent pornography or just or just violent images, video games, what have you, lead to violence in real life, or you can obviously make the opposite argument that getting it out <laughs> in fiction and in make believe is cathartic and then you can live your life otherwise. Well, and also, you know, it's very hot. 
It is. And the incidence of crime goes up drastically when the heat rises. Sure. You sound like Raymond Chandler now. It's a concern about global warming. I'm not even beating that facetiously. Maybe the heat and my lack of air conditioning is just making the violence in this somehow more interesting. I don't know. Well, do you think it's helping you or is it ratcheting no, I up think your... I was. I think I was more appalled. So it was not cathartic for you? No, I don't think so. I thought I thought I was more appalled by this than I might be if I were very air-conditioned and um, Got not it. cranky. Got it. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I'm really not taking a stand on which way that argument cuts. And the answer, I'm sure, is that it cuts both ways in different ways and it's all a mess, so whatever. But it's just interesting. It feels awful to say that her ruthlessness when it comes to this casual reference to the darkness of humanity is pleasing, but there is something that's sort of... um, Well, I mean, I do think that we have talked about this before, but in the short stories, it's more pronounced, right? Absolutely. It's almost like she can be a little irresponsible. Like, she can be a little bit devil may care with these characters because she doesn't have to live live with them and we don't have to live with them as readers for too long. I don't want to read a novel about Dennis, you know? Or it's a mic drop. Sure. But I mean, she she can do the mic drop, I think, because we're, I really don't think I'd want to read a novel about Dennis and him murdering frumpy wives written by Christie. I honestly wouldn't want to read that written by anyone, but I can't imagine what that would be. It, I don't. I don't think that's... I mean, there, there are books that we've not gotten to yet. Sure, there are. But I think there's more going on, or the way it's set up is different. I mean, we'll be talking about those, but I don't know. Because they're short, I think, yes, it's like she can throw in something awful and be like, and door slam, mic drop. Right, right. You know? She doesn't have the space or the time to do with a lot of moral ambiguity in these. Right. So she can be cavalier in a way, and it's maybe it's just that it's refreshing because it's so different from the novels and also just different from a lot of what we come across in this genre. Right. And I mean, you know, we're going to talk next week about murder on the Orient Express. <laughs> and I think there's a real reason why that book and why And Then There Were None have lasting cultural relevance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, talk about there's nothing cavalier about about the nothing, treatment of you know. nothing cavalier about what happens in either of them. Absolutely. So I do think that's going to be an interesting counterpoint and something I think that we should consider going forward. Right. Yeah. I think we might be the only Christie scholars thus far to have considered the bloodstained pavement as a counterpoint to. Murder on the Orient Express. Murder on the Orient Express. <laughs> but I like it. Ah, I like it. I think it's a really. I think it's a fair point. It's an accident of reading yeah. these things out of order, but it's a totally fair point. Yeah, I want to bring this up again because I kind of feel like we can't bring it up enough times. But the difference in the short story for Witness for the Prosecution versus the longer form adaptation. Mm-hmm. And there's a level of brutality there. Yeah. Well, and a brutality that she, when she herself adapted the play and made it that longer form thing. She changed she, it. She fought for that ending and she, yeah. wa- mm-hmm. she wanted to, it was a very important to her to do away with that brutality. It's ironic that her means of doing away with brutality was by having another murder. <laughs> but well, it, but right. it makes sense. It makes right. perfect sense in the context of, of the story. It is less brutal, even though it's an extra murder. And I think that both of us like it less. 
Much less. Because you know what it is? By changing and refashioning Witness for the Prosecution, the short story, into what it is in the play, that's different from what she's doing with Murder on the Orient Express or And Then There Were None, which were created originally. To be about ambiguity. Yeah, to be what they were. So I I just, it, it doesn't get to the level of what those long form novels are when she is essentially shoehorning a short story into something that she wants it to be in a longer form as as that play. That would be my argument. So on that note... On that note, I think we're both very excited for Murder on the Orient Express next episode. I think we're both excited, and I'm a little worried. When was the last time you read it, Kemper? A really long time ago. Yeah. I'm sure it's one of the first ones I read because it's Murder on the Orient Express, so I think it's been ages. I'm a little bit nervous. That's the fun of this project, revisiting Christy all these years later. Sometimes has interesting and unexpected results. So stay tuned for that. (laughs) Jeez, not not (laughs) ominous at all, guys. (laughs) And in the meantime, please engage with us. There are so many ways to do it. You can email us at allaboutthedame.gmail.com. Find us on Facebook, Facebook page, All About Agatha. On Twitter, at All About the Dame. Follow Catherine at Brobcat. Follow me, if you dare, at Kemper Donovan. He won't message you back. <laughs> yeah, I won't. I'll never see it. <laughs> Please do take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. And we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.